0: This is a really good turnout for the first week after spring break. Welcome back. You're not like new people, are you, right? This is the same group, right? All right, good. That's a relief. I was going to have a lot of recapping to do if this was your first night for all of you. Um, so before spring break, first, let me just say, um, the donations for, um, for Restored Hope Ministries are coming in beautifully. Thank you. I was so happy. Lindy and I were out there loading them into her car and it was like giant bags full of little puffy scrubby flower things and all kinds of smell good things. So I'm really glad you guys are coming through strongly on that. It's going to be a blessing to that ministry. So thank you for keeping that in mind as you are shopping. Um, we'll continue to collect for that for the next two weeks. And then we don't collect on the last week of this study. We like to wrap it up before that. So we've got tonight and then three weeks after this. Um, and we have been looking at what are the marks of genuine faith. And the week before spring break, we noticed that genuine faith chooses words with care. And so we took a look at how our tongues say a lot about who we are on the inside that out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Um, and that in the tongue are the power of life. And death, and those who love it will eat its fruits. We spent a lot of time looking at how we can use our tongues to either create or to destroy. And this week, we are going to move on with another. You know, how we've had pairs all the way through. We had um, there was the double minded man, so we had don't be of two minds when we were in chapter one, and then we had the double standard that was in chapter two don't be um, someone who shows partiality or favoritism, and so that was chapter two. And then in chapter three, we had had the double tongue. Don't be someone who um, tries to speak both out of your evil desires and out of your pure desires. And there was that image of, hey, can a saltwater spring bring forth fresh water? And the answer, of course, is no, that it can't. And so James is going to continue on tonight looking at a couple more pairs. He's going to look at worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom, and then he's going to look at a related topic, friendship with the world versus friendship with God. And so he's going to continue on with his pairs and he is going to walk right from his discussion of not many of you should presume to be teachers into a very natural transition because he began this week in James three thirteen with a question and the question was this who is wise and understanding among you okay and so who do we think is wise and understanding among us is it not the teacher is it not the person who opens up their mouth and speaks wise words That's what we tend to think defines who is a wise person, but he's going to challenge that a little because look what he says in the second half of 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his what? good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so right off of the bat, James is going to take us back from, hey, I don't care what you're saying if you're not actually doing it. You have to be someone who practices what you preach. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So look at what he's saying here. He says, by his good conduct. And you know what a more literal translation is? I just love this when I came across it this week. By his lovely life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So in other words, the life of the believer should be a life that is lovely in the sense that we are practicing righteousness. That we are performing good works out of the overflow of a changed heart. But he doesn't just say by his lovely life or his good conduct. He says, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So um, we're back to this idea of wisdom that was introduced in chapter 1 when he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all and does not find fault. And so we knew that God was the source of all wisdom and we defined what wisdom was. Do you remember this? We said there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And a lot of times we don't take a look at what that difference is. So knowledge is having all of the facts, right? It's being a good student of the facts. But wisdom is not just having all the facts. It's knowing how to take the facts and make the best decisions with them and so we talked about how that makes God capable of being the giver of all good things because how many of the facts does God have all of them right nothing can surprise him nothing can jump out that he was not aware of he can't be convinced or coerced because he holds all knowledge but not only does he hold all of the facts what else does he also hold all of wisdom, right? So he knows perfectly how to act on the facts that he knows. But what about us? We have partial knowledge, right? And we don't always avail ourselves of wisdom at all. In fact, we're fascinated with knowledge. We love the smartphone because the smartphone supplies us with a million facts. But does it give us wisdom? Let me just give you a little example from my spring break last week. So the Wilkin family had a change of plans sort of at the last minute. Now, I don't want to lie. We're not the most glamorous people in the world when it comes to vacations, but we did have something planned that kind of fell through. And so we decided, well, we always drive through Amarillo on our way out to Santa Fe to see my parents. Let's go to Palo Duro Canyon. We'll just go up for the day and we'll hike around. There was going to be one good day of weather. It was Tuesday, right? So we were going to go on Tuesday and have this beautiful day. And then the next morning we were going to get up and have a little trail ride. And then we were just going to head home. It was just going to be kind of our little outing for spring break. And so the whole time that we're headed out, there I'm thinking I hope the kids aren't out on Facebook looking at everyone's pictures of their ski trips you know I'm like does everybody just no devices in the car everyone so we drive we get up at like five o'clock in the morning we get in the car Jeff had checked the whole day before about you know what's the weather going to be like he had all of the facts okay so we drive six hours to Amarillo well to Canyon Texas and as we're pulling up to the entrance of the park rather than park rangers welcome us with smiling faces we see police cars And they say to us, oh, hey, thanks for coming out. The park's closed. Oh, see, that would have been good to know, wouldn't it? Because wisdom probably would have checked to make sure that the park was going to be open. Now, the park was on fire, so it wasn't like something that we could have planned way in advance for. So thankfully, so then we're like, okay, regroup, regroup. And we're like, we're Wilkins. We make our own fun, right, kids? So we medicated with food, you know, we went to Brahms, because, you know, can't find one of those around here, right? We were like, I tweet out, hey, what's fun to do in Amarillo? And it's like, chirp, 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 chirp. And then plus, I've just told, hey, come rob me while I'm gone, right? I mean, I totally blew every, in my frantic state, I'm like, I don't care, take my stuff at home, just I got to save spring break. We ate at the Big Texan Steak Ranch, we went out to the Cadillac uh, Ranch, and it was like this dust storm and we were just coated in dust and spray paint. It was awesome. And then we get, Jeff and I were like, all right, uncle, we give up. We go back to the hotel and the kids end up being thrilled out of their minds because all those years that we never had cable TV at the house totally paid off. All they wanted to do was watch reality TV on the cable So it was not a complete disaster. They did open the park the next day. But it was an example to me of how you can have, oh, and there was this this historic house we wanted to go visit because, I mean, we had some time on our hands, right? And so I call this woman, and she answers, and she's like, yes, can I help you? And I said, can you schedule a tour for us to come see the house? And she's like, oh, sugar, we're only open April to August, at which point I wanted to yell, what on earth else do you have to do? Like, I've seen your town. Nevertheless, they were not open. But the cable TV is always on. So we ended up regrouping and having a good time. But it was one of those times where all of our knowledge availed us of nothing because we did not have the wisdom to check one last time and see is the park actually going to be open? There is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And what James is talking about here is the difference between two kinds of wisdom, which very often look the same, right? On the surface, look the same. So you have worldly wisdom and you have godly wisdom. Going to talk about the difference between these two. And so the first one, worldly wisdom, let's see what motivates it. So, starting in verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So the first kind of wisdom that we look at is this worldly wisdom, the wisdom that does not come down from above. And apparently if it is characterized by covering up the fact that we have underneath of that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as our motive. Okay? And this word bitter that you see here is the very same word that is used earlier on in the passage we just finished where it said, can a salt water produce fresh water? Can a salt spring produce fresh water? It's can a bitter spring produce sweet water? And so he's pointing again to this idea of bitterness. And he doesn't just say if you have jealousy. He says bitter jealousy. And he doesn't just say if you have ambition. He says if you have selfish ambition. And so worldly wisdom is always motivated by a desire to do what? Elevate yourself above someone else. Isn't that what jealousy and selfish ambition are about? They're about looking at someone else's status and saying, I want a greater status than they have. So not all ambition is selfish. There are some forms of ambition that are not selfish because they are either jealous for the well being of someone else or they are jealous for the glory of God. And so, not all ambition is sinful ambition, but the ambition we are talking about here absolutely is. And so, when we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. So in other words, we will try to exercise a wisdom that will deceive people into thinking that that is not our motive, which means I might do really good things. But I might be doing them for the wrong reasons. So have you ever known someone who was a really kind person and took a meal to everyone, was always the person who did something for you when you needed something done, was always thinking of what she could do to help other people. But at the end of the day, it became clear that the reason that she was doing it was because she needed a thank you note or she needed people to say, you're just the kindest person I know. Or she needed you to owe her something, to be in her debt. So it is possible for us to do something that appears on the outside to be godly wisdom as its motive. But the longer we know a person, the longer we spend time around them, we begin to realize that their motive is not what it should be. That that good act is actually covering bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So in the NIV, this verse says, "...but if you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition." If you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and I really like that translation because what is a harbor for? What do we do in a harbor? The harbor is the place where we drop anchor. The harbor is the place where we say, this is where I'm going to stay. This is where I'm going to put that anchor down as far as it will go, and I will not budge. And this is the picture that we see of what worldly wisdom looks like. It is when we have determined in our hearts, I am going to anchor here in my jealousy. This is where I will put my anchor down, is in my selfish ambition. And it will root me here and it will drive every decision that I make. And so he says, when you are in this situation, notice what he says. He says, do not, deny it. Do not boast and be false to the truth or as the NIV says, do not deny it and be false to the truth. What is the opposite of denying something? If I don't deny something, what do I do? I confess it, right? Do you see what James is saying here? He's saying, look, if this is you, he's not just saying don't deny. He's saying confess. Admit to the fact that you have dropped your anchor here, that you have said me above everyone else. Don't cover it. Don't cover it and act like everything is okay and like you're out for the good of others. You confess it. You get it out there. And don't be false to the truth of what is really going on. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So he gives us these three descriptors. So when we talk about temptation, we talk about that there are three sources of temptation. And what are they? The world, the flesh, the flesh, and the devil, right? Have you ever heard that? So there are three routes that temptation can come through. The world, meaning people around you who influence you, they might tempt you into sin. The flesh, which is your evil desires that James has already talked about, the war in you. And then the, four, the third one is the devil, that there could be some source of demonic temptation. Well, we see here that James is pointing to these three things when he says that worldly wisdom is earthly, it is of the world, it is unspiritual, it is of the flesh, And it is demonic, it is of the devil. But don't kid yourself, which one of these, as James already told us, is our true problem? Ourselves, right? Like we want it to be about, oh, the devil's sitting on this shoulder and an angel's sitting on this shoulder. I just got to listen to the angel and I'll get it right, right? Half the time, we're not even thinking about the angel and the devil. We're so busy listening to the wicked monologue that is going on inside of our very own hearts. So don't for a second think that your biggest threat is because there's an evil influence in your home group who wants to drag you into sin, or that Satan is whispering lies in your ear. Your bigger problem by far is that your heart wants to believe the lies that are coming at it from outside. Wants to. And your evil desires drag you away, as James has already told us. So he says that is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And then in verse 16 he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And this phrase, every vile practice, comes from the same word that referenced the man who was unstable in all of his ways in chapter 1. So instability and disorder are the result of following after jealousy and selfish ambition. Every vile practice and disorder will result. And you don't have to look far to know that this is true. Because where do we see jealousy and selfish ambition play out all the time? Well, you might argue, where do we not see it happen? But particularly, think about politics. Right? The government. And what do we find? Disorder and every evil practice results. But we don't even have to look to those halls. We can look at The Bachelor, You put all of those women under that roof competing for one really fantastic guy. Oh, my word. And I admit, I'll just tell you, I used to watch it back in the day. I mean, I read about it now in the People magazine when I'm at the dentist office, and I think, oh, that show has gone downhill. Oh, my goodness. No, it's always been bad. So you put these girls under the I mean, like the fun kind of bad, but it's bad, right? No, it's not even fun anymore. So they all under this roof, right? And what are they doing? They're all bitter envy, jealousy, selfish ambition. Everybody wants the prize. And what do you get? Disorder and every evil practice. Disorder and every evil practice. So we can look at and we can say, that's just terrible. That's just disgusting. Politicians, they got no conscience. And those women on that show, they got nothing, you know, worth worrying about. And it's just disgusting to watch all this happen. But did you notice who Paul is talking? Paul. Did you notice who James is talking to here? What has he said? Who is wise and understanding among you? Do you get the implication there in verse 13? Who is wise and understanding among you, my brothers, among you, my sisters? He is telling us that this disorder and this every vile practice plays out among the brothers and sisters, that it plays out within the church itself. That's pretty chilling. Have you seen this happen? Have you seen the person in the church who needs to elevate themselves above other people? And so they make alliances with people that they perceive to be important. Or they place themselves in areas of ministry that they perceive to be more grand than other areas. Or they tell a certain something to this person so that they can turn them against this person. Why? Because if they can bring those two people against each other, then they themselves will be elevated And so there are all of these little side discussions that go on and there are all these power grabs that go on. And what happens? Disorder and every evil practice. But it's even worse because it's within the church and where of all places ought there to be the evidences of a lovely life, as James has said. Ought not the bride of Christ to demonstrate a lovely life, but when worldly wisdom comes in and when we begin to operate the church based on what makes sense to man instead of based on what is good and right in the eyes of God, it descends into disorder and every evil practice. So we must be on our guard. And this is what James is saying. He's saying you have to watch out for this within the church itself. And what he shows us is that worldly wisdom Sows a harvest of disorder and instability in the soil of jealousy and selfish ambition. So, jealousy and selfish ambition are the fertile soil in which the seeds of disorder and every evil practice are sown, and eventually there will be a harvest, is what he is saying. So, he has set up this one contrast for us, and now he's going to tell us about the good kind of wisdom. Starting in verse 17, he says, But. That's a good word. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so he's just given us a contrast. Whereas worldly wisdom sows strife, godly wisdom sows a harvest of righteousness and order in the fertile soil of peacemaking. So let's see. Let's pull this apart because he's given us a bunch of different ways to look at this. He says the wisdom from above is first pure, meaning it is rightly motivated. It is not motivated by selfish ambition or jealousy. It is motivated for the glory of God and the good of others. For the glory of God and the good of others. It is secondly peaceable. Now, I'm going to talk about that more in just a second, but it's worth noticing that he's going to give us a list of descriptions here. And this is the one, peaceable, is the one that he is going to revisit when he gets done with his list. So then he says, it is gentle. The godly wisdom is gentle, meaning it is not harsh. Okay? It is not harsh. And so, so often when we think we have a wise word to give, this is what I talked about last week about how when you presume to teach, that you have to understand that you can't just speak truth and think truth will be beautiful to everyone who hears it. You have to love the people to whom you are giving truth. Otherwise, you will be harsh. But here he says, no, it's gentle. The NIV says it is considerate. There is a gentle and considerate way to exercise godly wisdom. It is a wisdom that is slow to speak quick to listen, slow to become angry. And then he says that godly wisdom is open to reason. It is open to reason. That means that the person who exercises godly wisdom is open to discussion, does not find discussion threatening. Not only doesn't find discussion threatening or a questioning of their ideas threatening, but they are also comfortable admitting that they are wrong. They can admit that they are wrong. They can be approached with something, and they can hear it. They are teachable themselves, and they can respond with a quick apology or admission. He also says that godly wisdom is full of mercy. It is full of mercy. This means it overlooks offenses. It quickly overlooks offenses. And he says it is full of good fruits we know what these fruits are, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are what godly wisdom looks like. These are the lovely life, are those fruits coming to fullness. He says it is impartial. Godly wisdom is impartial. Well, he spent a lot of time already talking on that, and he just wants to remind us of it here. And then he says it is sincere. Godly wisdom is sincere. It is genuine. It is authentic. It is without show. It does not require bells and whistles to make evident its beauty. Impartial and sincere. And then he says that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he has managed to work the word peace in here as many times as he can in these final verses of this section. Godly wisdom sows a harvest of righteousness and order in the soil of peace. Making You may remember that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. But do you notice what Jesus does not say? And do you notice what James does not say? Because we hear this according to our own thinking, and we forget to hear it the way that it has been stated. What is not said is, Blessed are the peacekeepers. He does not say that, the peacekeepers will raise a harvest of righteousness he says peacemakers you and I are called to be those who make peace between God and man by sharing the gospel and pointing people toward the truth of salvation and between man and man as far as we are able to reconcile people one to another and peacemaking is completely different than peacekeeping right you know what a peacekeeper is right someone who just doesn't want there to be conflict they are a conflict avoider and they are interested in a short term resolution to an ongoing problem and so like with my kids here here would be an example hey kids Hope you're listening to the audio. I'm about to air something out. So my kids all share rooms. So the two girls are together and the two boys are together. And when they're at each other, you know, when they're having friction between each other, what common, uh, a common response is, okay, well, I got to I gotta break that up. I got to separate those two and get them apart. But do you see how that's peacekeeping instead of peacemaking? Do you see how that's you go here and you go here so that I don't have to deal with the friction between the two of you and everybody just calm down? But did we resolve any of the conflict? And what we found is even though it was much harder and took more time and more effort on our part as parents that what was actually better was not to split them up but to find more ways for them to be together. Because then we're making peace. We're not just keeping the peace. We're finding a way for them to be reconciled to each other and work out their differences in a way that allows them to honor God and honor each other. So peacekeeping versus peacemaking. Peacekeeping is a short-term view. It wants to live through the moment. Peacemaking is in it for the long term. In it for the long term. Peacekeeping is passive. It says, I'm just going to hunker down and hope that this passes by, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep this from exploding. Peacemaking, rather than being passive, is active. It looks for an active way forward to restore relationships. Peacekeeping is conflict avoidance. Peacemaking is conflict resolution. Peacekeeping, let's be honest, is the path of least resistance. Peacemaking is the hard path. It's the path of discipleship. Peacekeeping ultimately is a product of self-focus. Because it keeps it easy for me. And peacemaking is others-focused and God-focused. So, you know, it's like when everybody is just going crazy and you're a young mom and you're like, I'm just going to pop the video in and it's all going to settle down. But you know, you know, right? That's not so much about your kids. That's about mom keeping from doing something crazy, right? And I'm not saying that there's never a time that you pop the video in and peace returns I'm not saying that there's never a time for that, but I'm saying if that characterizes us, not just in our relationships with our kids, maybe it's in your relationship with your parents. Maybe there's a topic you can't ever talk about because it just makes you tired, right? And even when the beautiful, perfect opportunity presents itself, you're like, I just don't even want to go there. It makes me tired. I'm just not going to do it. Let's talk about our last vacation together or let's talk about my cousin who we never see. Let's find something to divert our attention onto. Maybe it's with your spouse. And it's something that drives you crazy, and rather than ask him or have a conversation with him about it, what do you do? You're like, never mind, it's just the way he is. And then you walk away, but you didn't forget about it. You didn't forget about it. There was no peace that, was, that happened there. What did you do? You walked over here, and you dropped anchor in bitterness and selfish ambition, and you said, I lay my anchor here, and I'm just going to sit on this. Peacekeeping doesn't resolve anything. Anything, it harbors all of the things that we need to lift anchor on and move on with. If we are peacemakers, we keep sailing. We do not drop anchor. Why is it important for us to understand this distinction? Because Jesus was not a peacekeeper. If Jesus had been a peacekeeper, there would be no crucifixion. Jesus chose the better thing. He was the ultimate peacemaker. No matter how hard, no matter what it took, he became the ultimate peacemaker. And this is our example. This is our example in the meekness of wisdom. Because what is meekness, right? You saw in your homework that Jesus describes himself as meek and lowly of heart, right? And what is meekness? It's that strength under control strength under control it's that picture of um like a a horse so like we rode horses in the canyon on wednesday when the canyon was open again bless the lord oh my soul and so we are riding the horses and i I grew up riding horses and so to me it's not that scary of a thing but if you haven't ridden a horse a lot you get on that big animal and you think all right anything could happen here snake comes out horse takes off i die that's the scenario we're looking at today right because what, what it's hard for you to understand when you haven't been around a horse a lot is that when we put, as James says, when we put bits in the mouths of horses, we can guide them wherever we want them to go. Now, has the horse diminished in his strength at all? No. It's just that he is now strength under control. And that's what meekness is. And meekness is the way that Jesus describes himself. He is strength under control, but he submits his will to the will of the Father. So when he goes to Gethsemane and he knows that the crucifixion is imminent, what does he say? He says, Lord, not my will but yours. I don't want to do this. In my humanness, I look on this with dread and I say, let there be another way. But then I say, not my will but yours. His strength is not diminished at all. It is just strength under control. That is what meekness is. And then he submits himself to the will of the Father. And this is a characteristic that we see of godly wisdom is that it is meek. It submits to the will of the Father. Which leads us very nicely into the next section of verses, James 4, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And James asks a very important question of his group of listeners. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights, and here it is again, among you? So do you hear his focus here? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, my brothers and sisters? You, the body of Christ. What causes quarrels and fights? And what's people's response to this? Like if I said, you know, why, you know, it seems like there's a lot of quarreling. Like if I asked my children in one of those moments of friction, I hear a lot of quarreling going on, Claire. Can you tell me why there's quarreling in your room? What will Claire probably say? Mary Kate is causing problems, right? I mean, it's a universal thing is someone else is causing me a problem or i'm tense about school or there's something there is always something external that is causing the problem what causes quarrels and fights among you other annoying people that is usually our answer or our difficult circumstances and let's think about this because the group that james is talking to are new believers they're relatively immature in their faith and what are their circumstances like are they trying or are they not trying They're very trying. Remember we talked about how they had lost social status. They were losing financial security. Everything that they have known to be familiar is now unfamiliar, and they're feeling a lot of fear and anxiety, which is why he has been reassuring them, hey, count it all joy. Hard times are going to come. It's going to mature you. But what do we do when our world starts coming unraveled around us? Does it make us soft and pliable and peacemakers? Is that what we turn into? No, we flip out. We get so irritable. You know the number one cause of fights around married couples? What is it? It's money. We get cranky when our finances aren't in the right circumstance. We get cranky when things are going wrong in our lives. Our patience goes out the window so often. And so he is appealing to them, knowing exactly where they are. And he's saying, what do you think causes quarrels causes quarrels and fights among you? He knows what he, that they think it is, but he's going to give them a more faithful answer. And he says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he introduces this language of war and he attaches it to the idea of passions. Now remember these passions, these are the desires that he's already told us, drag us away into sin. So he says, what causes the quarrels and the fights? It is your passions that are at war within you. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Now he's going to use some hyperbolic language here. I don't think they were murdering each other in the early church. But he's saying, do you understand, this is all out war when this happens. And so he uses the language of war. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And then what does he say? He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So first notice what he's doing here. What did he start with? He said, what causes quarrels and fights? It's your passions. Okay? So he says, your passions are what start this whole thing with the quarrels and fights in the first place. And then what is it that is the end result? Like what are we hoping will happen? That we can spend whatever we gain on our passions so he says it starts with your passions and it ends with your passions this whole thing is linked to your ungodly passions you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel and then he says you do not have because you do not ask now what does he mean there is he saying you want things that you shouldn't have but you didn't ask for them so I didn't give them to you the Lord doesn't give them to you no it can't be that what's he saying he's saying there are good and right things that you could be asking for what's one that comes to mind wisdom. Thank you. He says, you don't have it because you haven't asked for it. And what does that demonstrate that they believe? They are self-reliant. That's the first thing he talks about. You are self-reliant. You don't think you need the good things that God gives. But then he moves on to a second problem. You are self-seeking. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's like, you don't ask for the things you should be asking for. So you don't have them. But you know what else? You ask for all the things you don't need. You ask with wrong motives, even when you ask for the right things. So you might ask for wisdom, but you want wisdom so you can look better than the person next to you. So he says, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You are self-reliant and you are self-seeking. But he's just getting started because he moves on to verse 4 and he pulls out all the stops. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The NIV says friendship with the world is hatred toward God, setting those two in complete opposition. And this you adulterous people is actually translated a little more loosely than the literal translation. Do you know what the literal translation is? You adulteresses. You adulteresses. Why would James use that particular term? If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that the nation of Israel is presented as God's bride, just as the church is now the bride of Christ. And yet, over and over again, the prophets refer to her as an adulteress who returns again and again deliberately to her sin. And you guys know, did the Exodus study? How soon did their adulterous behavior begin? As soon as their sandals hit the sand of the desert, they began to say, Wasn't it better back in Egypt? I want to go back to my lover. And again and again and again, they want to go and they want to sin and they want to turn. And so, what James is saying is, Don't be like them, do not love Egypt. Love what is in front of you. Love the joy set before you. Do not have friendship with the world. Have friendship with God. Friendship with the world is to hate God. But we don't believe this. We are double-minded. We're like that double-minded man. We believe that we can kind of like the world and then we can kind of like God as well. And we tell ourselves that there's some way that we can make that work. But it's not possible to make it work. There is no way to make it work because we cannot, as Jesus will say, serve two masters. It is an impossibility. Romans 6.16, you will either be a slave to sin or you will be a slave to righteousness. But we tell ourselves, no, I, want, I just want a little bit of both. I just want a little bit of both. So if I were to ask you... Are you friends with the world or are you friends with God? You would probably say, oh, I'm friends with God. I'm friends with God. But then if I said, all right, pull out your bank statement and let me look at it. What would your bank statement reveal about whether you're friends with the world or whether you're friends with God? Or if I said, okay, we've looked at your bank statement. It looks pretty good. Now pull out your calendar. How would the way that you spend your time demonstrate whether you are friends with the world or you are friends with God? So my kids, they do know what else was going on on Facebook. They know where all their friends went for spring break. They know that really no one else was at the big Texan steak ranch with us on Tuesday night trying to make it work. And every now and then they will say, and not in a grasping way, not in an entitled way, really just in a curious way, they will say, We know, like we're old enough to know that you guys must make basically the same amount of money as everybody else on the street. But we don't understand where it's going. (laughs) Because in other homes, it's going different places. So can you just help me out here a little bit? And yeah, there's a little bit of a what the heck, you know. But most of it is, I mean, we've, we've tried to make sure that they spend enough time in places where people don't have their basic needs met. That they know better than to say, you owe me something, right? But they still are kind of curious. And we've had to come to a place where we say, yeah, you're right. We do make the same amount that these other people make. We're just not using it for the same things that they are. Let's talk about some of the things we are using it for. Look where we're giving money here. Look where we're putting money here. These are the ways that we're trying to use our money so that when you look at our bank account, you can tell that we're not citizens of this earth. We're citizens of it. That we're not storing up treasure here. We're storing up treasure there. And I'm sorry that that means that your spring break looks different. And I'm sorry that that means that there's not a car on your 16th break. Well, no, I'm not sorry. I'm really not. Because I'm a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. That's harder. But it's worth it. So what are the ways? How can your family look at your calendar and say, clearly, we're not like the other people on the block? What time do you set aside as a family or as a couple or whatever it is? What does your calendar reflect about where your treasure is? Are you a friend with the world or are you a friend with God? And here's the thing with being a friend with God. So I have a dear friend, we haven't lived in the same town for about eight years, and she is coming in town next week. Do you know how I feel about that? I cannot wait to see her. Every time I see on my calendar that she's coming, I get that little excited feeling because I know I'm going to see her and we're going to talk and we're going to catch up and I'll get to hear everything that's going on with her kids and she'll hear everything that's going on with my kids. I will thoroughly enjoy every moment of time that she is here. It will be a wonderful and sweet time. It will be a gift because she's my friend and I cherish her. Do you feel that way about the Lord? Like, do you realize the privilege that it is to be called a friend of God? Does it make you want to revisit your calendar? Does it want to make you revisit the way your checkbook looks? What do you love? Or do you love the things of this earth? Are those the things that get you excited? We are called to be friends of God. We cannot do both things. Cannot, and it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy the gifts the Lord has given you. It doesn't mean that you never get to go on the great trip. It just means that that doesn't define you. It doesn't characterize you. It's something you can enjoy without it controlling you. So. Friendship with the world, friendship with God. And we think we can have it both ways, but notice what he says in verse 6. He says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, there are several ways that you can take this verse. I think I mentioned that in your homework. And first, you need to know that it doesn't refer to any particular verse in Scripture. It seems to be a compilation of a bigger idea that exists, okay? And he's saying the Spirit that he has placed in you yearns jealously. Why? It means you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Do you think you can be a temple of the Holy Spirit and have your desires that are being transformed into loving the things that God loves and still maintain a friendship with the world? So our problem is not so much that we, um, that we are friends with the world. It's that the world is like a frenemy to us, right? You know what a frenemy is? You ever had one of these? You love that girl, but you hate her. Like you love her, but like she's cuter than you are and you have a hard time. Like she gets a stomach bug and drops 10 pounds and part of you just wants to lick her spoon. You want, and and when when things go well for her, you're like, I'm so happy for you. And in your head, you're like, I want to hurt you. (laughs) And when things go badly for her, you're like, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. But part of you is like, you totally had that coming, right? (laughs) Have you had this friend? Or have you been this friend? And this is our problem with the world is we know enough that we should hate some of it. But then there are these other parts that we love about it. And we think we can reconcile those two things, but if you've ever had a frenemy, you know that it never ends well. It ends up chipping away day after day at the integrity of the relationship until it is something that is bad for you and bad for that person. It's bad. And we think we can do this with the world, but what, what James is saying here is you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And he yearns jealously for you to give glory where glory should be given, and that is to him. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Thank you, Lord, because I needed to hear that at this point in the discussion. I do love the world and the things in the world. I want friendship with the world. But it says he gives grace. More grace despite our rebellious pride. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is good news to us. But He's just told us, what do we need to be good recipients of grace? We need humility, right? We need meekness. We need humility. And He says that God opposes the proud. Why does God oppose the proud? Have you ever wondered about that? Don't miss this. God doesn't oppose the proud because he's going around looking for people to set himself up against. God opposes the proud because the proud oppose God. The person who is prideful has, set the, has tried to elevate themselves not just above others. They have tried to make themselves God. And so, of course, God opposes them. Why? Because he is jealous for the glory that only belongs to him. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And now James is going to tell us how grace can become a part of our lives, how humility can be achieved. And he says that it begins with this word that we love to hate. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves to God. What does it mean to submit? It means simply that we acknowledge that his will is better than our will. His will is is better that what he wants for us is good and right so we yield ourselves to the authority of another and so we know that we're called to submit to various people or organizations that have authority over us in our lives and we chafe at that because we want to be self-determined we want it to be my way or the highway and so it bothers us when Scripture tells us, you need to submit to this authority or to this person because they've been placed over you. We don't like it at all. And why is that? Because we know that that person or that authority is just as screwed up as we are. So how can I trust myself to that person? But ultimately, all submission to authority that has been ordained by God is not because we trust in the authority or the person to whom we submit. It is because we trust God. It is submission to him. And so here he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then he's going to break it down into several steps. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now think about this for a second. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Think about what James did not say. He did not say, karate chop the devil and he will flee from you. He did not say, sucker punch the devil and he will flee from you. What did he say? Resist resist. Could there be a more passive term that he has placed here? Do you realize that the devil will flee from you if you put up the least amount of resistance? Do you know why? Because there are plenty of other people that he can go and pick on who will not resist him at all. Just resist him. You don't have to be like some spiritual ninja. Just break the pattern of I see it, I want it, I take it. Just guard your eyes. There are so many minor steps we can take that will cause the devil to flee. Resist the devil and he will flee from you is the first step in submitting our will to God. And here's the next one. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now let's talk about that one for a second. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Does this mean that if we draw near to God, he will now say, okay, well I see you making an effort so I'll come part way to you. No, because what's the deal with God? He's never far. Like, you get that, right? God is everywhere, fully present. But when do we recognize that this is true? When we begin actively trying to place ourselves spiritually near to him, we become aware that he has been there the whole time. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The nearness of God is always to the believer both our greatest assurance and our greatest caution, is it not? We take great assurance in knowing that God is near, but we ought also to take great caution from knowing God is near. God sees. God knows. You cannot be wrongly accused. But you also will know that everything that you do is known by him. So it is a good thing on both counts, but it is a good thing that is a caution and a good thing that is a comfort. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And knowing that he is everywhere fully present does help us to submit to him, does it not? And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so this cleanse your hands, you sinners, this outward cleansing, and then purify your hearts, you double-minded. This inward cleansing, the cleansing your hands, the picture of the priest in the temple going in to offer the sacrifice. So this understanding that we require both a change of the heart and a change of actions, that these are the things that must happen, and how do we get to knowing that we need these he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Do you understand what he means when he says this? Like what kind of laughter is he talking about? Is he saying just quit laughing, there's no more funny stuff? No, he's talking about the kind of laughter that laughs at sin in my life and says, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. I can be joyful and funny and keep going. This sin is not that big of a deal. He says, no. Don't be like that. The NIV says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Does it recall to mind anything from the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, who is blessed? Blessed are those who mourn, who are so destroyed over the presence of sin in their lives that they are overcome with grief. Do you know why this matters? Because so often we see our sin, but we don't grieve it. Arthur Pink, thousands admit they are sinners who have never mourned the fact, I know this is me. I see my sin and I say, yeah, that's a problem, but it doesn't break my heart. And so I never fully submit myself to the Lord. And what James is saying here is, let it crush you. Be broken in your grief over sin. Do you know why? Because you will never turn from a sin that you don't hate. You will never turn from a sin that you don't hate. You will never turn from love of the world until you hate the world. You have to grieve, mourn, and wail. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is a promise that we can count on. We know that the Lord does, in fact, exalt us in good time once we have been humbled by him. And What does he do? He rebuilds our hearts. He gives us a new heart. He gives us new desires, and he begins to conform us to the image of his son, of his son who he humbled and exalted. You remember Philippians 2? What did it say? It said that Jesus humbled himself willingly, to the point of becoming a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. And so then it says, therefore, God did what? He exalted him. But it doesn't just say that he exalted him. It says where he exalted him to. Therefore, he exalted him to the highest place. So Jesus Christ humbles himself to the lowest place and is therefore exalted to the highest place. When James tells us if we humble ourselves before the Lord that he will exalt us, will he exalt us to the highest place? No, because we have not been humbled to the lowest place. When we are humbled and grieved, it is because of sin. It is because of our sin. Jesus Christ was sinless. He became sin for us. You can't go to the lowest place because Christ went to it for you as the sinless son of God. So only he is worthy to be exalted to the highest place. But the Lord is faithful to do for us what he has done for Christ because of what Christ has done. That when we humble ourselves and when we say, as Christ said, not my will but thine, and we humble ourselves and grieve over our sin, he exalts us. He calls us friend. He calls us his child. What a beautiful gift. So genuine faith exercises godly wisdom. Genuine faith hates the world. So my question to you as we close this week is this. How can you choose godly wisdom over worldly wisdom? Where do you need to pull up the anchor that you have dropped on bitter jealousy or selfish ambition? How can you exercise godly wisdom? And in fact, how would that make you be a peacemaker where perhaps in the past you have been a peacekeeper? There's a relationship that I'm guessing came to mind for you tonight. How can you act on that this week? And then the second one is this. How can you learn to hate the world? How can you learn to hate your sin, your part of sin in the world? What sin is there that you are aware of but you have not grieved? Ask the Lord to help you to see it for what it is so that you can hate it and turn from it because that is the first step to being conformed to his image, to being exalted as his child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithful words of James. Lord, I confess to you that I have sin in my life that I don't hate yet. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to teach me just the sorrow of it. I pray, Lord, that you would show me and you would show us where we have been content to be peacekeepers instead of peacemakers. And that just as you have reconciled all things to you through Christ, Lord, that we would look for ways to reconcile each other to each other and to reconcile others to you. Lord, we do not want to be those who are double in our allegiance to the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And we do not want to be those who believe that we can balance friendship with the world and friendship with God. Give us single-mindedness. Give us single vision. Fix our eyes on you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.